It's called Car Talk, featuring Click and Clack, the Taffet Brothers. I love their Bostonian accent. People would call in and they would diagnose their car problems and fix them, often in a very humorous way. I will never forget a particular episode. This young lady called in and, and wanted to know whether she was at fault or not for a particular um, engine problem that had happened many years before. She had taken her father's car on a trip, and as she was driving, the check engine light came on. Well, nothing was going wrong at the moment, so she ignored it and kept driving. Well, eventually, some engine noises began to emerge from the car that corresponded to the check engine light. <clears throat> but she didn't want to do anything about it, so she got, but the check engine light really bothered her. Um, so she wanted to fix that. And the way she fixed that was she found some tape <laughs> and put some tape over the light. Well, somehow she made it home. Next morning, her father got in the car, put the key in the ignition, and the car basically blew up. Her father survived, but the car did not. And there she was, all those years later, calling, click and clack, asking them, was it my fault? I think she wanted them to say, no, it wasn't. But if that's what she was wanting, she was uh, disappointed. They said, no, it is your fault. You did that. And not only did they do that, but they somehow coaxed her father's work number from her, called him at work while she was still on the phone, told him what had happened, and then made her apologize. <laughs> Sin in the life can be a lot like engine trouble. It doesn't usually start out with smoke billowing out of the engine. It usually starts small, but our conscience, like the check engine light, warns us that if we don't correct ourselves and repent, there's going to be consequences to follow. And it's tragic when, like this young lady in her father's car, we ignore our conscience, put band-aids over sin, and refuse to follow sin to the ground and root it out of our lives. It's tragic because the consequences that will inevitably follow upon ignored sin will be serious no matter how small it seems to be at the moment, no matter how invisible to others, no matter how seemingly insignificant. But the problem is, and I'm speaking to myself here as much as I am to anybody else, we are all apt at doing just that, at putting tape over our consciences so that we can keep on sinning. And the reason we do it when our conscience is warning us is because the sin about which it is warning us is something that only we know about, only we can see, because it's there in our heart, it's there in our minds, and no one else can know it. And we think, well, as long as it stays there, we're all right. There's two problems with that reasoning. One is that uh, it's not true that nobody sees your sin. God sees your sin. 
Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, which we've probably all heard quoted many times, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. But then the very next verse says, God says, I do. I know it. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his works, his ways, and according to the fruits of his doing. And of all the people that we should be concerned, or of all, of all those that we should be concerned about who might know our sin, we really shouldn't be concerned about other people. We ought to be concerned with the fact that God knows and sees our sin. And the fact of the matter is he sees every sin, no matter how hidden away we keep it. And that leads to the second problem with that kind of thinking. The thinking that secret sin is okay as long as it stays hidden. Not only does God know your sin, but he will deal with it. Either in the present, in the form of discipline, or in the future, in eternal punishment. And since he sees all sin, there is no sin that will not be dealt with. In this connection, the words of Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31 are significant. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fact of the matter is we all have this tendency to externalize our obedience to God and to be happy with ourselves as long as we appear to be living righteously on the outside. And it's a strange thing, isn't it? That although religion has to do primarily with God, we tend to primarily make it about other people. And that's what led to this false interpretation of Exodus 20:14, which our Lord quotes here in verse 27. Just as the scribes had misinterpreted the prohibition against murder in a way that ignored the attitudes of the heart and the sinful anger, even so they had misinterpreted, they had externalized the prohibition against adultery in a way that ignored the desires of the heart and the thoughts of the mind that lead to the sin. As John Stott put it, they gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. And so Jesus says, yeah, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. In other words, and again, quoting Stott, any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in look and in thought. So I want to ask the question this, this evening of myself and of you, how do we keep from externalizing and rationalizing this kind of sin. And I want to approach this in two ways. One, by trying to understand what this passage says about obedience to the seventh commandment. And then secondly, understanding what this passage says about sin in general. 
So first of all, what does this passage say about obedience to the seventh commandment? How do we, in understanding what that commandment is saying, because our Lord's not repealing it. He's not replacing it. He's expounding it. So he says here, we, we need to understand, we, we're going we're to understand what obedience to the seventh commandment looks like, first of all, by understanding the meaning of obedience to the second commandment, and then understanding the motivation to obedience to the obedience of the, second, of the seventh commandment. So first of all, let's, let's try to understand what is the meaning here of obedience to the seventh commandment. And the first thing I want us to notice here is the meaning in terms of its dimensions. And we see its dimensions here in terms of its breadth and its depth. So in terms of its breadth, one thing we need, I want every one of you to understand this evening is that the prohibition against adultery and the lust that leads to it is not to be narrowly restricted to instances of men cheating on their wives and vice versa. It's a prohibition against all sexual relations outside of marriage. Nor is this a prohibition directed only against men. Women are not off the hook because the law itself demonstrates this. Under the Mosaic Covenant, both men and women are punished for breaking the seventh commandment. So we must not think this is only for guys. And to define these verses in such narrow terms is to be guilty of the very sophistry that our Lord is seeking to correct. So we need to understand the breadth, but we also need to understand the depth, the, the emphasis of Jesus' words on the desires of the heart, the imagination of the mind. That's what our Lord is aiming at in these words. According to our Lord's words here, fantasizing about sin is sin. And the reason is clear. You don't usually sin unless you've replayed it and played it in your, in your mind. It doesn't mean, of course, that adultery is not bad. It is. Our Lord, again, doesn't, is not repealing the seventh commandment. He's not replacing it with something else. What he's doing here is he's telling us, here's what our, where God's getting at here. We're not okay as long as we haven't committed the act. We're only truly seeking to obey the seventh commandment when we are fighting sin at the heart level so that it never reaches the physical level. I think it was John Owen who said, let not that man think that he has, he's going to get any um, advance against sin who has not his foot upon the neck of his lusts. So we need to understand the breadth and the depth of this text. And then we need to understand not only its meaning, but we need to understand its meaning in terms of its uh, dimensions, but also its meaning in terms of its demands. So that's what our Lord is getting at here in verses 29 and 30. Do you hear it? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Cast it away. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Cast it away. That's the demand. What our Lord is saying here is that if sin begins in the heart, you need to be careful that you're guarding all the inlets to the heart. The eye is an obvious one. Lusting generally is preceded by looking. Eve looked at the fruit before she ate it. David looked at Bathsheba before he sinned with her. So if your eye is causing you to sin by becoming an inlet for sin to the mind, 
you need to pluck it out. Job learned this, didn't he? Job 30, verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I what? Look upon a maid. And then he goes on to speak of the heart. If my heart has walked after mine eyes, if mine heart has been deceived or enticed by a woman, or if I've laid at my, my neighbor's door, and then he goes on to say, let God judge me. And the same is true of our hands and our feet. We need to be careful about anything that's going to cause us to sin that would introduce the deceitful lies of sin into our lives. So that sin gains traction and begins to wrap its deceitful lies around our hearts. Jesus is saying what Paul would later say to the Romans, make no provision to the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Now, I do think it's important, hopefully we all understand, although it's, it's not clear in church history that it's always been understood properly, our Lord is using hyperbole here. He's not saying if your eye causes you to sin, you're to uh, actually pluck your eye out. If your hand causes you to sin, you're supposed to actually cut your hand off. That's not what he's saying here. That's a gross misapplication. Our Lord's not calling for physical mutilation here. I mean, because, again, the point here is the heart, isn't it? You can pluck out your eye. That doesn't do anything to your mind. <laughs> you can still sin with your mind when, you don't have, when you've lost your eyes. You can still sin in your mind when you've lost your hands. So what in the world is our Lord saying here? What's he doing? He is simply putting in as gripping a language as possible. And it's gripping, isn't it? I mean, you may be nodding off, and when someone says, pluck out your eye, you pull, cut your hand off. Did I just hear that? What's he doing? He's, he's telling us. Jesus is grabbing you by the collar. And he is saying, do whatever it takes to get rid of the sin in your life. The utter necessity of dealing with sin on the heart level, removing anything that might tempt us to sin in the heart. He's telling you and me that nothing should be more precious than obedience to God. A book, a magazine, a movie, a place, a friendship, a job, a social media website, smartphone. If it causes you to stumble into sin, if it provides opportunities for sin to find a place in your heart, do whatever it takes to root it out, no matter how much it hurts you to do so. I mean, it doesn't mean anything less than that, does it? Otherwise, what's the point? So we need to understand the meaning in terms of its demands. But I want you to notice here, what does it stop with the meaning? The, the dimensions and the demands of this text. He goes on to talk about motivation in verses 29 and 30 as well. He's not only helping us to apply the command, he's motivating us to do so. You see in the words, it is profitable for you. Do you see that, verse 29? Go down to verse 30. It is profitable for thee. Here's the amazing thing. That as bad as plucking out an eye is, as bad as cutting off a hand is, it is still better 
for you to do that than to go before God with an eye that has let sin into the heart or a hand that has become occasion for sin against God. Now, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. I believe as much as anybody in this room in the preservation and the final perseverance of the saints. I believe that all the elect will be saved and not one will be lost. Amen? But I do not want to let precious truths drown out biblical realities. Because to profit in this connection is to escape hell. That's, the, that's what the English language is saying here. So what, what is Jesus doing? He's helping you put things in perspective. Sin can offer you no sweetness that will make it worth being cast into hell for it. And I can assure you on the authority of God's word, there is no person in hell who thinks that the life they live is worth suffering for. You hear people all the time say, well, we'll be party in hell. There's no parties in hell, folks. <coughs> so, no, our Lord is not saying the elect can lose their salvation. But he understands that warnings like the one in our text are meant to act under God as motivators to obedience so that the saints will persevere. And he's making the point that God's people, who have been called by the grace of God out of darkness into his marvelous light, there's going to be a fundamental change. Paul says that God sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. They may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in him. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. So people, that doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean we can't, that, that uh, if we sin, that it's all over and God's done with us and we're not saved. It's not what it means. But what this means is those who persevere in sin have no reason to call themselves elect. But of the saints, it, it should be said, such were some of you. So do you hear it? You, we, 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 we ought to beware that we're not, we're, we're not uh, um, trading on the grace of God. Those who give themselves to this kind of sin are in danger of hellfire. That's what our Lord is saying. And the only way we can make our call in the election sure is if we're repenting of sin, walking in obedience to our Lord, if we are becoming the Beatitudes. <coughs> so, I mean, we, we've heard about the Beatitudes this morning and what that means. None of us, when we read that, we, none of us can say, I'm there. The Beatitudes are great things to pray because you're not there. God, make me more poor in spirit. God, make me more of things I need to mourn for. God, make me meek. God, make me hungry and thirst over righteousness more than I, I'm doing. God, make me a merciful person and a pure heart. Get all this evil and rotten filth out of my heart. God, make me a merciful man and a peacemaker. Make me someone who's willing to suffer persecution for your sake. So it's not that the saints are there, but they are becoming the Beatitudes. There's a trajectory to their life. And those who have left that behind and say, I want to have nothing to do with that, 
they are in danger of this very thing that our Lord is talking about here. And you need to, you need to take this seriously. So understand the meaning of obedience to the set to what obedience to the seventh commandment means. But then I think at this point it's important for us to step back and to think about what this passage says about sin in general. <coughs> we need to hear what our Lord says about sin because otherwise we're going to be programmed to think about it in the way the culture wants us to think about it. And of course our culture wants us to ignore sin. It wants us to make light of it, especially things like anger and lust. So first of all, this text tells us something about the nature of sin. What does sin do? Well, it defiles and pollutes the heart before it ever gets to bubbling and, and onto the surface and over it acts. Jesus says this in, in John, sorry, Luke 6.45. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. And that's why our Lord is hammering things like anger and lust. I'll say many, if not most, instances of murder wouldn't happen if anger was not already there. No one would commit sexual sin if it weren't for lust. So this tells us something about the defiling nature of sin. It defiles us in the, on the heart level. But it also says something about the power of sin. It not only pollutes, it has power. An angry person at first does not suspect that what they're feeling could very well end up in murder. But how often has that happened? We must not fool ourselves. We, are, we, we shouldn't think that well, it would never happen to me. I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never commit murder because to say that kind of thing sets you up to do the very thing. I mean, think about King David. Who was King David? Well, he was the man that, he was the king that sinned so badly, right? Yeah, but he was also the man after God's own heart. We need to take sin seriously, not just after it breaks out in sinful acts, but long before when it's stirring in the heart, and it's first stirring in the heart. So understand something about the nature of sin. It's polluting. It's powerful. And then the second thing our text tells us about sin is the seriousness of sin. Sin is not primarily serious. Our Lord, I mean, think about what our Lord is motivating this. This is so unlike so many sermons that are preached. He does not say sin is serious because of the consequences in the here and now. He doesn't exhort us to steer away from anger problems because we might lose a job or alienate a loved one. Or even because it might cause us to commit murder. He warns us against it because sin brings people under the judgment of God. It exposes them to the danger of hellfire. The same as with lust. Why should you guard your heart? He doesn't tell us to do so because it might cause you to commit adultery in your marriage. That's not what he says, right? What does he say? He tells you to guard against sin in the heart because a failure to do so exposes us to hell. That's what our Lord is saying. Now, again, we must never forget salvation is all of grace in God, but damnation is all of man. People go to hell not because of what God has done, but because of what they have done. According to our Lord's words in John 5, 29, who are those who receive the resurrection of damnation? Who are they? 
Who are they? They are those, our Lord, these are our Lord's words. I'm not putting words in his mouth. Go look at it. John 5, 29. They are those who, do, who have done evil. We must never forget that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We must never forget that where is the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is nevertheless equally true that the wages of sin is death. By the way, the death in Romans 6.23, which I just quoted, is contrasted to eternal life. Well, I take that to mean the death there is eternal death. Sin is serious. Do not let this culture make you think it's not. All Every movie you watch is telling you that. Every movie you watch is telling you that. The third thing this text tells us about sin is that we need to mortify the sin in our lives. This follows from the seriousness of sin. It's, if it's as bad as our Lord tells us that it is, we need to mortify it. Mortification is an old word that means to put to death. The King James uses it in Romans 8, 13 to translate thanatao. For if you live under the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the flesh do mortify... Put to death the deeds of the body you shall live. Now, I think we need to take this seriously as well because there's a school of thought in the Christian community that teaches that growing in holiness is the easiest thing in the world as long as you have enough faith and a bright enough outlook or believe the right things. Get a checklist, go through the checklist. But Paul's words and our Lord's words should put that forever out of our minds. To deal with sin is to put it to death. It's to cut off a hand or to pluck out an eye. I don't care how holy you are. That's hard. It can be a painful experience. I think there's a picture of this in Isaiah 6. You know, when Isaiah sees the glory of God, the holiness of God, and for the first time he understands his sinfulness, everyone else's sinfulness, You know, it, it goes in the right direction, right? So, so often we say, I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, but I'm okay. But Isaiah, when he saw God, he first said, I, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then God takes, he sends the, the, the angel, the, the seraphim, with coals from the altar and puts it on his mouth. That had to hurt. Yet that's what must be done when it comes to the sin in our lives. So if you take this passage seriously, you're going to amputate anything in your life that is a temptation to sin. By the way, the thing may be innocent in itself. But if it is for you an occasion of sin, you must cut it off. And that's why it's useless to lay down man-made rules as to what a person can see or where a person can go, what you can do. What may be a temptation to one person may not be a temptation to another. People have different temperaments. They react to things differently. What may be a cause of sin to one person may not be to another. Although that, that being said, we have to be careful. We don't take Christian freedom as an excuse to sin. But what our Lord is telling us is that we put to death anything in our lives that is a stumbling block to us. 
if something causes you to sin, no matter what it is, cut it off. So as Christians, there are places, there are going to be places that I cannot go. Because to go there would be a provision of sin for me, or making provision for the flesh. There are going to be books that we cannot read, or movies that we cannot watch, because to do so would give Satan an opportunity over your heart. An opportunity for sin to gain mastery over your affections and imagination. <clears throat> and again, we have to wrestle against our man-centered orientation. And we, we, we begin to think this way. Well, if I, stopped, if I stopped going to that place, what are they going to think of me? Or if I don't watch that movie... I'm not cool anymore. I can't talk with my friends or whatever. And, and by the way, some Christians may not understand. But listen, it is more important to obey Christ, even if it means plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand, than to be thought, than to, trying to avoid being thought to be a cultural Philistine. So put sin to death. Think of this, the sin that you're toying with in your mind and in your heart is the very kind of thing, is the very thing that nailed Christ to the cross. Jesus didn't just die for murderers and adulterers. He died for people with problems with anger and lust. He bore the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God upon those sins just as, just as much as he bore the wrath of God for the more open sins. God can no more have fellowship with a man or a woman whose heart is full of lust than he can have fellowship with a man who's been unfaithful to his wife. God can no more have fellowship with a sinfully angry person than he can with a murderer. All sin is what? It's treason against God. All sin is rebellion against God. And that's why it took the death of Jesus on our behalf to bring us to God. Because all of us, myself included, are guilty of breaking the sixth and seventh commandments in our hearts. And therefore, we are all of us exposed to the wrath of God. The Christian puts sin to death because our sin was put to death by Jesus. And if we really believe that, we cannot have a lazy attitude towards sin. So may God give us such a heart for holiness and such a love for sin that we make no bargains with sin in our heart, but mortify it and put it to death. Now, I'd be remiss, if I just stopped there, I think it would be wrong. I think something else needs to be said. And that is this, the power to keep, to obey these words, is not in you. It's in Christ and in him alone. All, all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And if you would mortify sin, you will only find the power to do so in Jesus Christ.
Remember what Paul says in Romans 8.13, if you, through the Spirit, those are three very important words, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. It's not through your own efforts and goodness and merit and righteousness, it's through the Spirit of Christ, who, who mediate, the Spirit who mediates the presence and the power and the grace and the blessings of the risen Christ. And I love, I, I, I love saying Romans 6.14, so where, where Paul says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law, but under grace. You know the difference between the law and grace? You know the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant? It's not that there aren't any commandments for Christians to obey. There are plenty of commandments. <laughs> Jesus is not repealing the seventh commandment. You read the epistles. They are chock full of, here's how you live. Here's what you do. So it's not like Christians don't have anything to do. Paul says, I am under the law of Christ. The difference in the Old Covenant and New Covenant is this. In the Old Covenant, God wrote his laws on tables of stone. In the New Covenant, he takes his law and writes it in his people's hearts. And the reason why God is able to do this is because of what Christ did on the cross. He not only purchased for us the forgiveness of our sins, but also newness of life. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Romans 6, 7 is very interesting. In, in the King James, it says, um, for, um, let me read this real fast. So, he that is dead, for he that is dead. So, he said in Romans 6, 6, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's what we're talking about. But then he says, he gives the reason why you're able to do this. For... He that is dead is freed from sin. The interesting thing there, that word freed there is, is, is the Greek word justify. In fact, every other instance in Romans, it's translated justify. So what is Paul saying there? The ground of your sanctification is justification. And the ground of your justification is not your works or righteousness, but the righteousness of God imputed to you through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. So it's not my godliness that enables me to do this because God doesn't justify godly people. Romans 4, 5, again, one of my favorite passages. God justifies who? The ungodly. Because the righteousness by which my status before God is changed is not my righteousness, but it's God's righteousness imputed to me on the basis of Christ given to me. Given to those who trust in him. And when we are now moved into fellowship with God, we have every spiritual blessing at our disposal. So you are, not, you, you, you are not under the dominion of sin, Paul says, because you're not under the law, this thing that just preaches to you from without. But you're under grace that works within and enables you to do this. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not because I get a better attitude about things. It's not because I have a... I find seven steps to a, a more healthy outlook. It's not, it's, it's because of what Christ has done. And so I think what's perhaps most important tonight, yes, we, we need to take sin seriously, so please. Yes, we need to amputate the sins in our lives. We are to have no quarter with the sin in our life. We are to do all that it takes, do all that it takes to root the sin out of your life. But listen, if you're trying to do that on the basis 
of your own efforts, if you're trying to do that on the basis of your own worth and merit, from your own resources, my friend, you have no resources to obey this. That's why, you know, that's why people totally misinterpret the, the Sermon on the Mount by making it about a, a kind of a legalistic document. It begins with our need of grace, right? Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. The people have nothing. We begin the Sermon on the Mount with nothing. So where do we get the power to obey this? Christ, who is not only our king, but who is our prophet and our priest who speaks to us the way of salvation and who mediates for us before God. And so I want to encourage you tonight. Yes, root out the sin in your life. Yes, do whatever it takes, but do so through the Spirit of Christ, relying on him, looking to him, look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen.